0: Good morning church. Uh, If you guys would please stand with me as we read today's scripture sermon Today is going to be coming. We're continuing in Colossians chapter 3 today is going to be Colossians 3 Verses 12 through 17 if you would read along with me with the scripture that's on the screen put on then as chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in work or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the blessed opportunity you've given us here today to gather as your adopted children to hear your truth, to sing songs of praise to you, to pray to you, Lord, and acknowledge our 100% dependence upon you for everything. Lord, thank you that you called us to yourselves, that you call us holy and beloved. And Lord, give us the wisdom and strength that we need to have the compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness that you speak about in this passage today. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your truth. If there be any lies that we are believing of this world that are clouding out the truth of what you say let them be removed give us loving confessing repentant hearts lord to turn to you and live for you in the way that pleases you thank you lord strengthen us as we hear your word today amen
1: Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at the church, uh, one of several leaders Uh, we have. uh, Last week, one of our elder candidates, uh, a pastor in training of sorts, Stuart McGinnis, preached for us uh, from the beginning of this chapter. I'm very thankful, and I hope you are too, uh, for his faithful and hard, deliberate work in preaching God's word. We are in the book of Colossians. It's a New Testament book. So if you have your Bible, if you have one, you can turn to the right side of your Bible, near, closer to the end, and that's where you're going to find the book of Colossians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul, a special and uniquely called minister, a messenger from God, uh, wrote to a church in a town called Colossae. He, he didn't know many of these people personally, he knew some of them, but he is writing this letter because their pastors traveled all the way to Rome where Paul is. On, under house arrest and and he's come to say my people keep on hearing and they're being told all these lies all these false gospels they're being encouraged and expected to engage in extra religious things they're being called to participate in, in mysticism and philosophical paradigms and structures and systems they're being told that if they don't believe these extra things and, and participate in these other cultures then they aren't really right with God that they aren't really Christians. And this breaks Paul's heart, rightly so. And so he's writing a letter to serve a church that's under attack from lies, from lies, because these lies have an effect. What you believe determines how you live. What you believe about God determines how you live your life and specifically where you will end up in the next life. And so we pick up in Colossians chapter 3 to discover Hopefully today, the main point of what I'm trying to distill for you, which is this, that we, the church, we are new, cross-formed people repeating our thanks with everything we do. That's who we are. We are cross-formed. We are formed. We are made by the cross. See, God biologically knit you together in your mother's womb at some point It seems at conception, the Lord God Almighty assigned to you a personhood, a soul, whether or not he's got some sort of bank account of souls that have just been waiting to be applied to a body, or whether or not he he establishes and creates your soul anew at that moment, brand new, out of nowhere, at the moment of your conception, your Christianity, your eternal life is formed, it's born at conception at the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection we are a cross formed people we're new we're not better people we are new people and that we're marked as a people who are just repeating over and over and over again our thanks to this God with everything that we do with everything in our lives that's the main point in, from Colossians chapter one all the way to verse seventeen, there there are two different selves. There are two different selves in this passage. There is a self that died with Christ on the cross. That's Colossians chapter three three through eleven. Paul says that you have since therefore you have died with Christ. There is a person, the person you were naturally born as, your nature, your personhood. That you were born as is a naturally born sinner, a naturally born rebel and opponent of God, a thief of his glory, someone who's trying to take his place on the throne as God over your life and perhaps in some ways over other people's lives. And there's a second self, there's a self that Christ on the cross died to bring to life. There is a you that had to die on the cross with Christ, and now there is a new you that Christ died on the cross to bring to life. That's today's passage. Paul is going to use use some language that you just heard uh, in, in Blake's reading that we're to put on something. We're to put on an identity, like clothing. He's using that sort of language. It's a new identity. This is a new person who Paul states is chosen by God. This person is holy and beloved, he says in verse 12. The old person of of verses 5 through 11, that person isn't holy. They're not different. That's what the word holy means. It means different, set apart. Set apart. That person is not set apart. That person is not different. That person is just like every other fallen person sinful human being. Whether God will or ever will choose them, this person rejects his choice. This person doesn't choose God. And and this old person, this, this head and heart posture of this sort of person, the natural born you and me, it results in words and actions that are described in the previous sermon in, in verses 3 through 11 as as sexually immoral, impure, having evil desires. And they're all summed up by the idolatry, the false God-worshipping of covetousness. What is covetousness, Paul says? What is covetousness? It... To covet is to sinfully want something different or more than what God has wisely and kindly seen fit to give to you. It's (laughs) to sinfully believe that I'm the best judge of what I need and what I deserve and not God. Covetousness is sinfully distrusting God, distrusting him, questioning him, and therefore judging him. To covet is to accuse God of sinning against me regarding what he's given to me or taken from me or is withholding from me. It's to judge him. Coveting is essentially the the, the first demonstrable sin that mankind exhibits, one of the first that we exhibit. When Satan comes in the form of a serpent in the garden to Eve, and he tells her, he says, listen, that tree over there, it's good. There's nothing wrong with that tree. Is that that true or false? God said, don't eat that tree. Is it because the tree's bad? No. The tree's good. Nothing wrong with the tree. But God said, don't eat of it. And and Satan goes, God is holding something back from you, Eve, that you ought to have. He positions himself, himself as creator and father, and he says he loves you, but... There's something good that your father is holding back from you that you deserve. You can't trust him. Satan is constantly trying to adopt God's children away from God, the father. You don't need him. come, come, Come hang out with me. Come spend time with me. I'll be a better dad because I'll give you the things that you think you deserve, that you ought to have. Covetousness is idolatry because in this posture, it's idolatry because in this posture, you dethrone Jesus as Lord of your life and you take his place now. And this leads us to believe this old person that Jesus has to die on the cross and drag with him for that per- this person to die. This person, man, they end up believing that other people, other human beings exist to make much of me according to my lordly expectations and requirements, my preferences, my philosophies, my viewpoints. And when other people can't or they don't satisfy my expectations or my standards or my preferences, I am compelled to judge and condemn and punish them, to cast them out of friendship, to cast them out of power, to cast them out of influence. Because I can't have someone like that disagreeing with me or contrasting with uh, against my view and my beliefs, I can't. I can't have that opposition. And these expectations; those are the result of false gospels. Those are false beliefs about God and ourselves and other people. And the false gospels; these false gospels that the Colossians are being offered, that they're being taught. They're, they're things like religiosity, right? Rel- Religion at its best, at its purest, is simply the pursuit of man to try to respond to and obey the God that they believe in. But religion at its worst is a system of beliefs, regardless of the God and regardless of the activities, that says, in order to get God to love me, I'm going to have to do some stuff that makes me lovable. I'm going to have to make an exchange with God Where I do some things he likes, so he'll do some things that I like. And Jesus Christ, who is God, says, that's wicked, that's damnable. And so there are people in the city of Colossae, inside of the church, saying that you have to engage in some extra-religious practices, some ancient traditions, otherwise you're not really with Christ, otherwise you're not really right with God. It's moralism. You see, you, you can't be a Christian and drink beer. You can't be a Christian and vote Republican. You can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. You can't be a Christian and wear jeans if you're a girl. You can't be a Christian and have rock music and guitars on the stage, right? The, the moralism either goes super modern and sophisticated and, 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 and liberal and progressive or it goes way, way ancient, traditional, conservative. But they're, they're just two moralist, moralist sides of the same coin. And it's a false gospel. Mysticism, hyper-spirituality, these create, they create a system of self-achievement and self-actualized merit. And those who disagree with, and they can't measure up to my view of my identity and what I believe everyone else ought to be, they don't fit the narrative of my God in this world, they're now my inferior. They're now my inferior. Whether I say it out loud or not, and most of us know in our society and culture, especially in the church, we know we way better than to say it out loud and like be clear about it. But we reveal those subterranean values and beliefs with our attitudes and our words and our works. We dehumanize and we sin against other people because we're now in the position of God. And that's the identity we've assumed for ourselves and the story of our lives and it now needs to match up with who we believe that we are. This person is who Jesus Christ dragged to the cross and killed with his own death. What what takes the place of this old self is a new self, which Paul is talking about here. The person who was born when Jesus rose from the grave, picking back up his life which he laid down. So here's my point at the end of a 12-minute introduction. If you're a Christian you realize how precious you are? How miraculous that is? In a universe that we can't, we still have yet to figure out how to see the end of space and time and light. In the whole universe, there is nothing and no one apart from God. There's nothing in this creation of creation. There's more special and valuable and precious than a person that Christ died for and made alive. The problem with us Christians is we, we don't understand pride and humility. We'll get into that in a second, pride and humility, but we, we just, we don't, we're prideful in the wrong way and we, we overestimate ourselves and we don't rightly estimate the, the greater worth and value that we have that's in us because of Christ but you are incommunicably precious. Establishing and accepting that identity is crucial. And here's why. Because the commands that Paul's giving, the things that you're supposed to do or not do in this chapter, they don't truly, they don't authentically happen in a person who still holds on to, who hasn't put off that old self, right? See, sticking feathers up your rear end does not make you a chicken, it doesn't. Just because I can go and put on um, a, a, a black and white striped shirt and get a whistle from, from Academy Sporting, right? That doesn't make me a referee. Something has to happen to me. I have to be created that. I have to be established that by someone else who has the authority to make it so. And therefore, it doesn't matter if I can go onto a field and I know all the rules of football and I can blow the whistle and I have my own yellow flag. That doesn't matter. I'm doing all the things that refs do, but I'm not a referee. I have to have an identity. I have to put on something. I have to put on identity clothing that God has given to me and says is mine. Otherwise, the things that we're supposed to do, it's fake. fake. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the person whose mind is set on the flesh, the person who's committed to thinking and believing and accepting the identity and beliefs of their old sinful self, rejecting God and putting themselves in that place, that person, they won't please God with anything they do. Do you know why? Because they can't. It's impossible. They can't please God. Because they haven't accepted a new self that Christ has died to raise to a new life. We are a new cross-formed people repeating our thanks with everything we do. So now let's look at the text. We've kind of, I've touched on it using some of the words. Verse 12 is where we start. Put on then, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul is addressing someone. I want to address who Paul is addressing. (coughs) (coughs) Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Colossian church, a church, a group of people a group is made up of individuals so he is talking to individual people so as I talk to you I am talking to you I am talking to you I am talking to you but I only address you because you are part of y'all right Paul is speaking and, and throughout all this the, the nouns and pronouns in this in this text the Greek if it was translated into uh, Georgian like vocabulary, it, the, every time he says you, he'd be y'all, you he's talking to all of us, each of us, all of us, which means the Christian life isn't some sort of individual self-improvement program via religion and spirituality. It's not an individualistic, independent program. There are things in this passage that if you are a Christian, you can't obey if you're not with and part of y'all you understand the christian who goes i don't really need the church i don't need to commit or participate in it. i don't need to devote myself to god's people and be part of the family and be a family member that there's there's swaths of the scripture that person can't obey god in and therefore if they can't obey they disobey cuz they're not part of the y'all not in the church And everything in this passage is relational. These are commands to us, for us, for one anothering. The Christian life serves as a living testimony to the goodness and the greatness of the Lord of the universe. And he's a Lord who doesn't simply change a person by taking them from bad to good, but by taking them from death to life. And it's a life that stands in contrast to a world that, self, that, that emphasizes self-centeredness, selfishness, independence, and pride. He says, put on then, because you're chosen, and you're holy, you're supposed to be different. Do you know why you're different? Because your beloved God loves you. Then, here's the kind of clothing you're gonna wear. Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, this new chosen, holy, beloved person has a unique attitude and posture. They now have compassion. They now have compassion. Let me just go through that list and just briefly define them. They have compassion. What does that mean? Right, it's it's way better and way stronger and way more necessary than the than the heartstrings that are being tugged when you, when when you watch TV and the commercial comes on and there's just like you know, puppies at the shelter and you know the song in the arms of an angel. Right, like my dog ran away last night. We're still praying that the Lord would bring our dog back. So I, I have a wounded heart for puppies right now, but compassion is is way better and way stronger than that. It's concern for others, specifically those who are in bad circumstances. It's, it's concern for people who are in danger or under threat, for people who are suffering pain, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, for people who are suffering in loss, they're grieving. Compassion means expending real emotional bandwidth and energy to think and feel what others feel and suffering. Compassion means hurting for people who hurt. Even though you're not the one who's hurt, you hurt for them, you hurt with them. Christians are meant to have big hearts. We're to show kindness. And this word kindness ought to be seen as uh, sweetness or gentleness. Sweetness or gentleness. Uh, I'll give you, uh, to contrast it, to help you understand, the opposite of, gent- of, uh, of kindness would be uh, severity or harshness, hyperassertiveness, bossiness, swagger. Bragging, boasting. An unkind, an unkind person thrives on being able to put someone in their place. They love to make the TikToks where, where they show themselves to be a Karen and a special kind of non-gentle person, non-kind person. They love to make the, the TikToks where they record the Karens so that we can all hate the Karens. You watch those, it's, it's just care and hate porn for us on TikTok, on Facebook. We, we get our jollies off on judging these people who lose their minds because they think they're better than other people, and they're, they're putting people in their place, and now we wanna put that Karen in her place, right? Because she's the bad one. This person can't wait to drop the mic on someone, to roast them, to give them the peace of their mind. It's that conversation that you wish you could go back to with that husband or that wife or that employee or that co-worker or that teacher or that boss. And you replay it in your mind and now you, you, say, the, you say the thing. And this is drama that you play in your mind and, you're just, and to be able to tell, oh yeah, well, at least my dad's not a loser. Bung. Oh my gosh, you put him in their place. Yeah. Don't test my gangster. There are people who love this, and we, I think that's an American societal dream many of us appreciate or maybe even aspire to. This person believes they gain power and approval by making other people seem smaller. Kindness does not want that. They demonstrate humility. Well, I mean, each of these could be a sermon. Tim Keller, there's a pastor up in uh, New York City he says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's instead it's thinking of yourself less and thinking about other people more. I'll say it again for those of you who would like to write that or tweet that or Facebook that. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Instead, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility tells the truth about who I am. So it doesn't make the error of of. Lying. It doesn't make the error of lying about myself and saying I'm scum. I'm the worst. I'm trash. That's a lie. And it doesn't also go the other way, to the other extreme, by telling the lie, uh, lie of flattery, inflating and building up who I am to be bigger or better or stronger or wiser or braver than I really am. Christian humility tells. Two truths at the same time. It says, I am a filthy, defiled, and defiling sinner, and I'm no better than any other sinner. And the other truth is, I am a clean, pure, chosen, holy, beloved child of God. And in his grace and mercy, he accepts me. And he says, I'm beloved and holy. And I'm no more deserving of that than any other sinner who could receive that grace. Christians, we are to put on meekness. We're to be meek. All right? So, so when I was in high school, I heard this phrase sometimes in my youth group. We, all, like, everyone would say this phrase like it was like the, the greatest. Like They just came up with this tweet in the first place before there ever was. Hey, man, y'all know that uh, meek ain't weak, right? Well, that's true. Meekness, meekness is not weakness. In fact, meekness, meekness is immense strength under control. That's what meekness is. This is the father who is a lion. A father who has strength and bravery. He can take a punch to the face. He can take a cut to the body. But he can be ferocious and tear apart the enemies that might threaten his wife or his kids or those he loves. And yet he doesn't roar and rake his claws Ripping open every single person who ever offends him, or looks at him wrong, or breathes his air, or even offends him. He he restrains the very power he has. How can he do that? Because because he's um, he's compassionate, and he's and he's kind and he's humble. It's it's the it's the mother who, is also a bear. It's the mother who's also a bear that can stand up just as well as any lying dad and wreck anyone and anything that might threaten her husband and her kids. But she doesn't unleash that fury. She doesn't rake her claws and eviscerate every single person who annoys her or frustrates her or insults her or offends her. She restrains that power. Meekness doesn't require a show of strength, to def- of defeating or destroying or killing in order to be seen. Meekness actually requires a show of strength that restrains such power and ability. Christians exercise patience. We're to put on patience, like put on patience like it's like it's a coat, like it's a, like a shirt. Patience, I just, it's not simply the ability to wait. The, patience is better understood as the ability to endure, to last. And what that means is specifically to endure hardship, to endure... In this case, for, for, for Paul, what he's saying is we need to put on patience, y'all. You need to be able, we need to be able to endure and last when other people are sinning against us. When someone in the church sins against you, you need to be able to endure that. You need to be patient. When a lost person sins against you, you've got to be able to endure it and not lose your mind, take off your meekness cap and punch them in the face and then be very unkind and roast them and drop the mic and be super prideful and not humble and have no concern or compassion for how stupid they look for having annoyed you or sinned against you. No, no, no. Instead, we endure, we stick, we stay with Christ in this new personhood that he's given us. It's the same endurance of God where he withholds his just wrath against those, us, who sin against him. And it's the same endurance that we need in order to withhold our fury and our just vengeance against those who really do sin against us. To not give someone what they deserve but to give them what we don't deserve and have received from the Lord, which is forgiveness. That's the next one on the list. We are to put on and bear like clothing, forgiveness, just like Jesus forgives. You see, forgiveness is free. There's nothing that, we don't have a coin that works in the economy of Christ that we give to him so he'll forgive us of our sin. So forgiveness is free, but I will tell you this, forgiveness while it's free is not cheap. It's not inexpensive. The forgiveness of God is costly. It's priceless. And our forgiveness, it costs something. It means absorbing. It means absorbing. It means to just eat. The emotional and spiritual and mental debt that someone owes you for what they've done to you or against you. It means you don't require of them that they pay you back. You don't need them to hurt you. Like they hurt you until you're no longer upset with them. They don't owe you anything. And you don't want anything bad for them. You want only good for them, even though they did bad to you. Now, verse 14, here's the biggie. Here's the biggie of the list of what we're to put on. Verse 14, Paul says, and above all these, that's how I can say, oh, you know, it's the most important one. Above all these, right? Right? Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I don't know what piece of clothing you think is most essential for you to have. Right? Some of you are shoe people, right? Some of you are all about your shirts. Some, you know, some, of, you, like, some of you are watch people. Like, some, like some of you have like, boxes and you have like five or six different like, custom nice watches. This, Walmart, $24.99, smart shopper, right? I don't know, like maybe, like probably like pants for most people is the essential, you know, or or, maybe a shirt to cover up, whatever, right? But the most essential thing that a Christian has to put on so that all the other clothes can go on, right? So we'll just say your underwear, because it doesn't matter if you're wearing the highest end, most expensive brand of shoes, socks, pants, shirt, belt, watch, jacket, hat, doesn't matter you still look like a fool and you're an idiot and no one will take you seriously if you if you put on your underwear at last right it's like a foolish like just Superman with your underwear on the outside of your pants No, no. above all these this is what's got to go on first in order for these other things to work is love this new self this character description these traits ends with the chief of all Christian traits, which is love. Now, how would, how would the world define this term? It's really tough for anyone, well, inside the church, but also outside the church. I, w- I would say, apart from knowing Christ and he, how he reveals himself and his love in his word, apart from that, I would say it's virtually impossible for the unbelieving, unseeing, and deaf to God's truth world to ever be able to land On a true or even useful definition of love. This word is so diluted, it's cheapened, it's confused in our modern English and in our modern Western culture. I love pizza, I love grilling, I love my Jeep, I love my dog, I love ska music, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my friends. I use the same word, but do you see that there are two different tiers? Two different shelves. I love my church. I love America. I love planet Earth. I love butterflies and I love whales. To love in our modern society, by the way, when it comes to interrelational love. It means more and more these days that I am supposed to agree with and I have to affirm every inclination, every thought, every preference, every belief, and every desire that you have. I, have. I don't just have to affirm it and say that's okay for you to believe. In some way, I have to at least agree. And if I can't agree verbally, then I have to show my agreement by shutting my mouth and withholding my disagreement. Otherwise, to tell you that I believe that that is wrong, that's harmful for you, or that it's not true and you're not seeing reality as it is, to say that would be hateful. Not only that, to love now means that I have to participate in whatever belief, whatever reality that anyone else embraces. And to disagree or even question whether they're right or whether it's even safe for them to think or feel that way, that isn't love, that's hate. And that's not God's love. It's not God's love. Which is perhaps the chief way that God has chosen to describe his character and his personhood to his people, is love. Right Now, I'm not one of those who goes, well, God is love. That's what the Bible says. But by saying and reciting that scripture, well, God is love, I don't mean to personify love and now love itself is God. No, love is not God. God is love. And God is also just. And He's perfect. And He's holy. And He's unchanging. And He is wrathful and avenging over His enemies. He's a conquering lion. But He has chosen to identify Himself to His people and those who will become His people and might not yet be His people. He's chosen to identify his chief characteristic and posture toward, toward his people, is love. He's faithful, he's patient, he's kind, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's love tells the truth. And God's love wants what is truly good for other people, not what I think is good for me, because often, so often, what I believe is good for me is actually the opposite and the opponent And the killer of my real good because what I want can we be real like if it's a safe place in the church for you to confess and be real it needs to be for me right so cool all right so I'll be the first middle schooler to cross the dance floor at the middle school dance and start dancing maybe some of the rest of you will join us right but what I think is good for me is I want to be able to go home every day and be left alone by my favorite people in the world they love me and all they want to do is see my good. And I want to be left alone and I want to sit in front of my computer and play video games and watch Netflix and YouTube. And I just want to demolish box after box of goldfish and drink as many Coors Light as I feel like drinking until I'm tired and then I go to bed. That's what I want. That's what I think. That's what, that's what my flesh, that's, my, that's what my inner self says. That'd be good. That'd be great. Then I'll, you'll feel happy with that. And for me to have that, Specifically to the extent and freedom that I want with no one saying, no one questioning, no one putting up any yellow flags or trying to go, hey, don't you take it easy, right? That's the opposite. I'm the enemy of my own good. I'm the enemy of my own life and satisfaction. I'm the enemy of my own joy. Anybody else there, raise your hand. Liars, except for my mom and Abby, thank you. Extra angel bucks to you guys. God's love tells the truth and he wants what is truly good for people. God's love seeks the safety, the happiness, and the flourishing of people by drawing them into step with his good design. God's love, love therefore, causes Christians to lay our lives down for the good of other people. It means love will tell the truth about sin and its poisonous and murderous effects on us. It means love will compel us. Love will compel us to make sinners have to climb over our dead bodies in order to get to hell. We don't, we don't want to send anyone there. They're going to have to climb and step over our corpses because we love them. No greater love has any man than this. What does Jesus say in John chapter 15? Than he that lays his life down, who dies for his brother. So the ability and willingness to lose your life so that another may live, whether it's your Life and you go to be with the Lord or he lose your life in some way, which means your life represented in dollars, your life represented in some hours on your calendar or days in your calendar. It means your life, meaning the emotional energy and, and hurt that it takes to forgive someone and relieve them of the debt they owe you for their sin against you. You lose something of your life or you die a bit. And that's the expression and the out, outpouring of what love is. So if I have to die... If, I, if my life has to end by running into a burning house so I can toss the child out of the window into the arms of a firefighter, I will do it because I love. And if I have to suffer your ridicule, if I have to suffer your name-calling, if I have to suffer your accusations, your lie, your lying, illegitimate accusations, or your real legitimate accusations of all that I have done wrong, if I have to suffer the scratches on my face, all so that I can stand in your way and keep you from the drug or the alcohol or the dangerous person that you so desperately want to run to and be with, I'll suffer all of that because I love. And if if I have to suffer the social rejection, if I have to suffer the loss of status or my employment or the public disrespect and dishonor, all so that at least someone will tell you the truth that might dismantle the lives of, the lies of Satan, which are poisoning you and putting you on the expressway to hell and separating you from God. Well, then I'll do it only because I could only because I love. Paul says that this sort of love binds us together in perfect harmony. Just put on love, which binds everything. Put on God's love, not the world's idea of love. Put on God's love. And, and don't, just don't stop, let's stop gasping in surprise and clutching our pearls. When what the world does is when they see our love, they call it hate. Jesus himself says in the Bible, there will come a day when people will kill you believing they are doing service to God. Because we love them. But Paul says this sort of love binds us. It doesn't bind the whole world together. It doesn't bind America and Russia together. It doesn't bind America and Ukraine together. It doesn't bind the conservative Republican Party with the progressive Democratic Party. It binds people in the church together. Do you know why? Because we're the ones that Christ has loved in this way. And we've received that love and we're new. We have the inputs We have like the computer inputs for that love. It works in our system, right? What's he mean? He means forgiven people tend to forgive people. He means to found people who once were lost, they tend to really like finding people. He means that loved people tend to become people who love. Because what was done to me has blessed me, and that blessing feels good. And it brings me joy and satisfaction and safety. It brings me comfort and courage. And now I see other people who don't have that, so now I want to bring that to them too. Just as we heard Stuart teach us last week in verse 11, when, when Paul just, is, uh, there's no, there's, listen, before Christ and in Christ, there's, there's no, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no like, you know, savage or sophisticated person. There's, there's, there's no this or that. What Stuart taught us was that Paul, what Paul is saying is that the superseding identity that binds the church together has nothing to do with race or philosophy or preferences or politics or culture. What, what makes us one together is the love of God. The identity that we have now as those who God loves. I just want to return to what Stuart said in his application just to make sure even the people in the back or the people at home are getting it. Paul is not saying that those things, those identities of race or ethnicity or language or tribe or politics or philosophy, Paul is not saying that those things God means to erase and they're supposed to be invisible to the body. We're supposed to be colorblind and politics blind. Now, those things do exist, and those actually are important to God. But those identities are superseded and overridden by the greater and superior identity that every Christian shares with every other Christian. We are the children of God who has adopted us through the grace that is given to us by his son, Jesus We share the past legacy of slavery to sin. We all share that. We share the testimony of rejecting God. We share the testimony of the life story that ought to end with us in hell. And what we share is the present and the future promise of Christ, the King of the universe, who never rejects us and always welcomes us and whose welcome is complete, and it's happy, and it's absolutely true. It's the love of God for the people of his church. And it's living, this love is living in, and it's flowing out of the people in the church, out of our hearts by our word and our deeds, that creates a community that actually can't be divided. The church is meant to be a secure and impenetrable community of people who no matter what Satan throws at us to divide us with moralism or preferences or extra rules or political ideals or economical structural ideals or race, he just can't seem to find a crack to get some water in to freeze it to split the whole rock open. He just, that's what the church is meant to be because we're bound together in perfect unity. There's not a crack That's what the church is meant to be. That's what God is calling us to. Because we are now, we are new, cross-formed people repeating our things with everything we do. See, both of these selves, both of the selves of this passage, they are most stridently marked by their posture of gratitude. They're most stridently marked by their posture of gratitude. See, the old self that died with Christ, that person's ungrateful, and they're only ungrateful. This person, the dead self, is ungrateful. It doesn't believe that God is good or good enough. He hasn't given you what you ought to have. He hasn't given you enough of it. He's withholding something that you deserve, that you need. You've earned it. He's taken something from you that he has no right to take. Look at what I've done for you. Look how hard I tried. Look how much I prayed. And this is how you repay me? They're not grateful. Nothing God, that God has done is good enough. Nothing that God is doing is good enough. And nothing that God will do is good enough. And this is the ungrateful heart of a person who is having a hard time. This is the heart of an ungrateful Christian who's having a hard time believing that God is good when something hard is happening and the suggestion, the plea is, let's, let's pray. And you go, What good is that going to do? we got to go look. We've got to go work. we are got to go strive. We've got to do something about it. Pray. Sure, sure. you stay here and pray. Well, I do something useful. And this person is ungrateful because they don't believe that God is good enough and that he's going to do anything good enough. And we're going to have to do it. I'm going to have to handle my life and other people's lives in my ways according to my expectations, according to my own timing. But this new person, this new self, is the person who Christ died to bring to life and And this person knows it. They can't get over it. I can't get over the fact that the creator of the universe put on a body just like mine and suffered like me and worse than me and was tempted in every way that I'm tempted. And he didn't deserve anything bad. And he got the worst. And he took it for me. So all I receive, all oh, the only thing I, I have to receive in the end of the day, at the end of eternity, going into the next eternity, is I receive good and approval and love and satisfaction from God. God's got nothing to say. He's got no, mm, yeah, but, or we should consider this little thing you said this one time, or you didn't quite, he's got none of that for me, except get in here. I love you, welcome to eternity here's my family, here we are. You are mine, I'm with you, I'm your God. You're gonna be my son, you're gonna be my daughter and nothing's ever gonna separate us ever again. We're gonna live like this forever. I love you. I can't get over that. The new self can't get over that. They know it and they remember it and you know what they do? They repeat it. You see, we are most ungrateful when we are most forgetful. You know this to be true if you are a parent and have had a Christmas day. Right? right? You, you, have, you have sinned against the prophet Dave Ramsey and you have gone into terrible debt to bring your children glittering prizes. And somewhere by 11 a.m., they have lost their minds and now they love the gifts more than the gift giver. And they rise up in rebellion against you and they have forgotten. Now they're ungrateful. They're upset because they didn't get something they wanted, and it wasn't the way they wanted it. Or well, now you're not going to let them eat a fourth round of Christmas Day pancakes. Oh, I'm the worst mom ever. You guys hate me. I hate you. Right? You for- have, you, have you forgotten? You must have forgotten because you are ungrateful. Paul is reminding the Colossians and us of the happy gratefulness of a Christian who remembers the gospel The person who isn't persuaded to believe a false gospel that only leads to misery, ungratefulness, and death. When a Christian doesn't take this old person off every day, because our old self is a zombie, it just keeps on trying to rise from the dead and and climb back up on us. They forget the goodness of a God who died and took your stead self with him to the grave. Those are ungrateful Christians. And these are miserable Christians who make others around them miserable. That's some of the worst company to keep, isn't it? An ungrateful person, a complaining person, a whiny person, a dissatisfied person. Now, why this talk of thankfulness? Because it's the fruit of all these new person traits. It's the fruit. It comes only to a certain person, only to a certain group, and it's the church. We, y'all, are new cross-formed people who repeat our thanks with everything we do. So I've got three kind of final points and they're just going to take us to these last three verses. We ought to be thankful that the peace of Christ rules us. We ought to be thankful that the peace of Christ rules us. See, the world, our current world, our modern American Western society, automatically equates that authority is wicked, authority is bad, authority is evil. Everyone in authority is suspect because all authority is bad and no one should have any authority because the belief is that authority means superiority and therefore if they're in authority, I'm supposed to submit? Fooey phoo- on that. Because submission means I'm inferior? No. I'm very special and unique. If I wanted to and put my mind to it, my elementary school taught me that I could be president, Right? All of us are created equal. And I'm going to pull from the great theologian, Joe Rogan. That's not true. Because I've met Shaq. And he or not, he and I are barely the same thing. Okay? To get my picture with Shaq, I would look like a toddler on my first day of T-ball next to his dad. We're barely the same thing. This world will tell you that authority is bad and you're most free when no one has authority over you. And God goes, no, what's, what the, what's bad is when there's bad authority. What's good is when you have good authority. You, you've known this. When you, the, 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 the contrast between having a really good boss and a worthless boss or a bad boss, a good teacher who loves you and a bad teacher who doesn't care about you and is only getting a paycheck and now they don't like you and they got you under their thumb they're like, Penalize you just because they don't like you and they're making your life miserable. The problem isn't authority. The problem is wicked and sinful and fallen authority. So be thankful that the word of, I'm sorry, that the peace of Christ rules you. You do have a ruler. 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful about that. What is this peace of Christ which is supposed to rule, like have authority over us? It's supposed to be our our. This peace is supposed to be like guiding us and leading us and showing us what kind of thoughts we ought to encourage and and, and stay in, what kind of emotions and feelings we ought to embrace and and give way to, and and what kind of words and actions and attitudes and postures we ought to engage in, right? This thing is supposed to rule us like like a king, a good king. What is it? It's the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is soul rest. It's soul rest. It's, it's, it's confidence. It's courage. It's a clarity of thought and feeling. And it's security. It's security most definitely in your heart. It's security in knowing and believing what is true in spite of all of the plausible lies that are out there and in here. We aren't meant to be a people who are paralyzed in fear from the chaos, from the shifting winds and the the towering waves of a stormy, angry, selfish, violent world of lies, of false gospels that are far too too innumerable. We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The peace of Christ means God is our dad. And we can call on him. And he actually listens. And he actually cares. And he's actually, and most definitely, doing something about it. We ought to be marked as people who know what to do with our very real fears, with our hurts, with our griefs, with our worry, and with the countless things that we can't do anything about. Like do you you got to understand, we, we're teaching our kids that adulting means doing chores and paying your bills and going to work. Yeah, adulting involves a lot of this. Do you know what real adulting means? Teach this to your kids. Kids, uh, dad doesn't know what to do here. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure we can do anything about this one. We got some stuff we're going to try, but this looks like something that God's going to have to work out. He's either going to show us something soon that we don't know, or he's going to bring someone in who can help this and fix this. He's going to bring the money in that can pay for this. I don't know what to do, but I'm your dad. I'm an adult. I have the peace of Christ. I'm a Christian. I have the peace of Christ ruling me, so you know what? I'm a good dad. I know what to do about not knowing what to do. I have the spirit of adoption as a son. I go to my father. Let's pray, kids. Let's pray. Let's ask God to do, untie this knot. that we We don't have the fingers to untie. We ought to be marked as people who know who we take all these things to and who we can trust to care about them and work righteousness and justice for the good of those whom he loves. Second of the last three points, be thankful that the word of Christ dwells in you. You have access, you have the inheritance of God's peace now. And you now, you have have the word of Christ dwelling in you. Verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which implies what? That the word of Christ might not dwell in you richly. It might not be dwelling in you richly right now. But it can, it ought to, and it can. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he doesn't add a list of other things. He's actually telling you how the word of Christ gets into you to dwell richly. Do you see how that works? Look at the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You might as well have it implied by doing these things, by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. (laughs) How great is it that we have the one God who actually talks? He's not made of clay or metal or wood. We have the one God who talks. The God who talks to us and he wants us to talk to each other and tell our brothers and sisters what dad said. Because my brother keeps, he's forgetting right now. And he's ungrateful and he's in danger. And he, the, the peace of Christ is not ruling him. He's being ruled by false lies and, 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 and gospels. He's in danger and I have compassion for him. I hurt for him. You know what? I'm willing to love him and and maybe even have him accuse me of trying to hurt him or attack him by telling him he's in sin. But I love him. I'll I'll let him do that to me because I don't want him out of step with Christ and in step with with Satan. Because I love him. We're to live lives that repeat with our every word and our every deed with our every sermon and our every song, with every prayer, with every time we take communion, we are to repeat with every meal that we share and the discussions around that food. We are to repeat with every fire pit that we sit around, with every burden that we bear with one another, with every text and phone call, with every celebration. We are to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat to one another with everything in our lives, not only on Sunday, which is holy, but on all days, which for a Christian are now holy because the Lord is the Lord of all of them. We are to repeat to one another the wisdom and goodness of God which has been lavished upon us. Repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Don't you think that gets boring? Well, A, no, and B, even if it could be, guess what? Satan's repeating. He doesn't get tired of repeating and repeating and repeating. The world and its fallen systems and false gospels they do not flag nor do they fail in repeating to you over and over and over. Those truths and beliefs which make us new and they bring us all the joys of this passage. Listen, you're not going to find all of these things there for you to put on you when you need them most if you neglect your Bible because the word ought to dwell in you. Does the Bible have a place in your life or does the Bible have its own place and you go visit every now and then? Maybe when you feel bad. Maybe when there's a big thing that you, all of a sudden you need to go to the God machine and, and put some holy tokens in. Maybe he'll give you the thing that you want, the car that you want, the girl that you want, the house that you want, the job that you want, right? Maybe it's the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the house of, of God with the Bible that you go and visit once, once a week. No, If you neglect the Bible and the Bible, God's word doesn't have a place in your life then you won't find all of these things. There'll be none of these things hanging on the hangers for you to put on each morning. And they won't be there for you when you need them most if you neglect the people of the Bible. We said it a few weeks ago, how does God strategically and intentionally deploy his goodness and his love to people? Through people? There's a reason that some of us are so feeble, so weak, so sad, so distracted, so dissatisfied, so confused, so tired. Some of us even potentially so sick, so starving because the word of God, which is the bread of life, is on the table gathering mold. And you're not even at the table, which the family has set for you to come and eat the meal because you believe you it's not necessary And it's not crucial. It's not vital to you to be with the people of the word. You'll be naked. And all you have to put on is your old clothes of your old self. You see, there are 168 hours in every week. There are 168 hours in every week. Who are you around Who are you listening to? Who is influencing you? Who are the people? What are the organizations? What are the channels that are influencing you on repeat? What wisdom are they teaching and admonishing you that you ought to believe? What identity are they encouraging if not demanding that you put on? What traits are you expected to participate in? What are the songs of your 168 hours each week that get stuck in your head and then they get rooted in your heart and then they start determining the way you live and the way you treat other people. Does this result in a more thankful person? Does this result in a person who is being reminded and it's becoming more and more difficult for you to get over, to get over Wow, the gospel of Jesus Christ What? From me? Are those people and their voices increasing your love for God and for others? Are they bringing you the peace of God? Are you being ruled now more and more by the peace of connectivity with God the Father because of who you're listening to? We're to do it with everything. Be thankful that God can make perfect use of everything you do. Final point we'll close. Be thankful that God can make perfect use of everything you do. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Your Father in heaven is not merely able to take everything that you do or say with your life, strong or weak Victorious or failing, healthy or sick, brave or cowardly, righteously or even sinfully. God not only can make use of that, I want you to understand he is happy to make use of your life. He takes that life of yours and he makes it mean something for his glory and you're good, maybe not your good now, but your eternal good. And now is very, very short. but oh, look, now just passed. Oh, no, another now just passed. Oh, another now just passed. And some of you have been worrying about something today that's going to show up today. Guess what? It's a now. That's rip. It's it's not even mist that disappears. Eternity. That's way longer. And God. He receives even your feeblest works and words and he employs them for eternal victory in ways that you will never see nor will you ever understand until you go and meet God your father at his throne and you sit in his lap and he goes, hey kiddo, I want to show you something. Some of us are worried about that day where we meet God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. Is he going to play a movie of all my worst moments, of all the things that no one ever saw? Because it's not just a screen of like what I did in college or what I did you know, after school in the car with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Blah, blah, blah. It, it's a, it's gonna be, it could be a screen of all my thoughts and all my feelings and all my, the things I imagined and played out. You don't have to worry about that. You know why? That movie got played at Christ's trial. That movie got played at Christ's trial. The movie that gets played now is, is Christ says when you enter, he goes, "Come here, good job, good job, well done, a good and faithful servant, friend." What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What about Jerry? Jerry? I just saw you twenty minutes ago. Tell him to depart from you because he—you never knew him. He's in hell. And I spent my whole life evangelizing him and I prayed for him and I tried to convince him and I, the more I did it, the further away from you he got. I wrecked it. And God goes, uh-uh. I said good and faithful servant, not good and successful servant. Salvation is of, my, of me. It belongs to me. But I saw what you did. It didn't work. Not requiring it to work. I'm requiring you to work. To obey me. Which means you've got to believe me and trust me that it's the best thing and right thing. I saw every time that Jerry made fun of you. I saw every time that he mocked you. I saw each and every person, he started spreading gossip and rumors. I saw, when, I saw it when he and the friend group kicked you out and called you a Bible beater and a holy roller and a righteous fuddy-duddy, right? They made the meme, and it's Ned Flanders' body, but it's your face from The Simpsons, right? I saw all of that. And you kept praying for him and loving him. What about what about your dad? Oh, my dad, like, estranged, and we we didn't talk for years, and I hated him, and he abused me, and then, yeah. But what about that last day? Yeah, sure, I went to the hospital, and I sat next to him. And he couldn't even hear me. He was in a coma. He died that evening. Yeah, let's play that one. And you prayed. It was more crying and sobbing and, and face melting than praying goes. Oh yeah, but I translate all of that perfectly. I know exactly what was behind all of that. I saw that, I heard that. Good job. And all of the boring things and mundane things and things that don't seem all that special or powerful, habitual things like going to work or making your kid a sandwich or picking up your husband's socks, even though you told a billion times to please pick them up. And this is my love language, picking up your socks, right? And every time you did that, and every time you were compassionate and kind, and it wasn't big and it wasn't explosive, and no one made a Facebook post about you or called the news to, to get a the video. No. God sees everything. He's, and Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, believing that Jesus is the one who takes happy meals and feeds thousands with them. What will he do today? With your word, with your action, as you are now thinking, I do this as a Christian. I do this in the name of the Lord. I do this to represent Him. Whether it's boring or surprising and exciting, because He's happy to make it. You have no idea. Just like, heaven, now I'm just going way over time. I don't care. Really don't care. This is the least I've preached in three months, okay? So you gotta give me that one. All right, so. Heaven, cool. Paradises, yeah. Mansions, cool. Getting to play golf with Moses every day for eternity. Yay! Pfft, that's, think about having the first portion of your thousand years where God sits there and gets to tell you and take you through every moment in your life where he's in it and working and bringing about good and bearing fruit that you never knew was getting born until you showed up here. And every day... He's bringing someone else in the kingdom here who's going to spend eternity as your brother or your sister in Christ for eternity. He, hey, uh, and this is Kim. Kim, what are you doing here? What do you mean, what am I doing here? You, uh, you prayed for me when we were in middle school youth group, and even though I was, a, I, I was a real jerk to you, and I was telling lies and gossiping, and I turned you down. And I but you prayed for me and forgave me and told, you, told me that you still love me and, and you were nice to me throughout all of high school. We never saw each other again. Yeah, but um, it was when I was 47. I went to church and someone preached the gospel and for some reason, Jesus put you in my brain and you were the first person to tell me the gospel and then, phew, ha, and now I'm here. Over and over and over again, the Lord will be revealing to you because he loves you all of the fruit of, that he's causing you to bear in your life that you don't get to have a view of right now because you wouldn't be able to bear the weight of that glory and that reward and you become prideful. You'll, You'll be able to bear it in heaven with a perfected body and soul. So don't wait for the circumstances of your life to change so you can be thankful. Don't wait for the circumstances of your life to change before you start doing everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. Don't wait for the circumstances of your life where you feel like you're better with your words or you've memorized more Bible verses or you've taken a theology class or someone here with authority has gone, hmm, hmm, ah, now you have the thing. No, you have received all things that you need right now to obey Christ right now. You've got everything you need right now to obey Jesus right now because you are a new cross-formed person repeating your thanks with everything you do, with everything you do. This is for y'all. It's for you, for you, and for you, and for me, for us, for y'all. Let's respond to the Lord and his word with communion. Up here on the tables and back there on some stands are, are what we call the communion elements, The, if we're allowed to call it, the, the bread, the wafer, in that little packet, along with the red juice, which is wine-like. They represent the body, the physical body of Jesus and the physical blood of Jesus. And when you come forward to take this communion today, I want you to think and recognize, I want you to hear and believe and accept this truth. Because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. When you take this communion, the old you that deserves to die and has to, died with Christ. And as you take that communion, you take it as a new you. One that was born and you didn't make that happen. You were born by the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. You're new. And you wear different clothing. You're pure and clean. You're chosen and beloved and holy. Before you take that, we're called to confess our sin. If there's bitterness, rivalry, if there's unforgiveness that you have for someone here in the church, whether they're here or not, God calls us to to lay those things aside to forgive them so before you take this communion take that to the Lord expose that with Him what He already knows let the Holy Spirit do some business with you so He can apply to you brand new and freshly anew today the very grace that saved you in the first place and if that person is here then you need to go to them tell them Love them, forgive them, bless them, and then take communion. If you're not a Christian, don't take this communion. This is a family meal. This is for people who are Christians. This is for people who belong to God. They've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus did this for us. And if you're not a Christian, if you come up here and take this as a religious ritual, what what you're doing is you're telling God, no, 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 I don't need Jesus to do business for me. I'll I'll just do the business. We'll we'll arrange it. And God goes, well, the only way that you can do business with me and handle your sin is I've got to send you to hell. I have to pour out all of this communion symbolism onto you. You have to die. All my wrath has to land on you. I have to shed your blood, and you have to go away. Because we love you, we're asking you, please don't tell God that. Please don't have that conversation with God. But if you are, listen, if you're watching online, or if you're here, whether you've been in the church forever, whether you said a prayer a long time ago, maybe someone dunked you underwater or not, if you sincerely believe that God has done something unique and special that has never happened in your life before, but today, all of a sudden, in hearing his word, you believe that you, believe that you really have received Christ. You, you really are. You, like something hap- I feel absolutely different and new. I think God did something. And I want the honor and privilege to get to serve you and talk with you and love you and perhaps even get to celebrate with you as you share the family meal next Sunday for the first time ever as a Christian. So, after I pray, you'll come up. You'll take the elements. You can go anywhere in the room that you feel like you need to be with your community group, with your family. You'll take the elements. You'll do that on your own or in groups. And back in the back of the table, we have our offering table. So we respond and we, and we give to the Lord because he gave to us first. He calls for us as Christians, he calls for us as his people to give the first fruits, the first 10% of what he puts on our hands to give to him. And 10% is like, oh, 10%, that's a lot. The question is, why would God let me keep 90% of what's his? And so we're going to respond and worship the Lord, and we're going to tell God, and we're going to tell ourselves that Jesus is the master we love and serve and not our money. We'll prove it by killing a little bit of our master and giving it, and our master will now serve our true master for the kingdom for his glory for our good for our joy and then we'll continue singing and we're gonna repeat and we're gonna repeat and we're gonna repeat the good and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ let me pray for us Father thank you for your word for speaking to us as new people we thank you for the newness that your mercies are new every day that your beauty and kindness is new every day whether we feel it or think about it or see it or not, Lord, I pray that you would be kind and merciful again today by making those mercies, your goodness, very real. Help us to never be able to get over the gospel that we've been made and formed by a cross with a Savior on it. Teach us to repeat over and over and over and never get tired to neither flag nor fail in repeating to one another the word of God that is to richly dwell in us so that we could all have the peace of Christ ruling our hearts for our good and enjoyment and for your glory, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Love you guys, thank you.